Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. Did you guys hear about, uh, there was a, um, a lady whose, her, her house was being broken into, a single, single older woman, and uh, she was being burglarized. Um, it was dark. She got up and she saw this person in her living room, like collecting her things. She didn't quite know what to do, so she just yelled, Acts 2.38, which says, she didn't actually say this, but it says, uh, it says, repent and be baptized. And this burglar froze. Yeah, go ahead and pass the buckets again. This burglar froze. He didn't know what to do, but he was frozen, so she calmly called 911. The... Uh, Police showed up, took this burglar into custody, and they were a bit confused. And they said, "Why, why did you, why did you freeze when she just quoted scripture to you?" And he says, "Scripture. She told me she had two thirty-eights and an axe." <laughs> you like that one, Lola? Several years ago, um, I saw that Tommy walked in. I didn't ask him if I could tell this story, but in, uh, in Sunday school, he was overheard praying, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a pretty good time like I am. I'm, I made that up. Tommy didn't pray that. Okay, so as those go around, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get started. It's... it's uh, humbling to uh to stand up here when uh when Glenn is gone or when he's here but uh it's it's also uh um it's satisfying to know that anyone can come up here and hear something that God has to say to his people so uh I uh I intend on saying what God has to say to you and uh, maybe we ought to pray about that first God, thank you for today. Thank you that you speak to us out of your word. I thank you that it matters to our lives, and I thank you that we can recognize it and, and, uh, and understand the new things and the new revelation that you give us. I thank you that you will speak through me today and that the people will hear you and their lives will be changed by it. In your son, Jesus' name, amen. So there are three things um, that, uh, and uh, also there are notes. I didn't check this. Are there notes on you version? So under the events tab of uh, Uversion, you'll find um, some of these notes. Feel free to, uh, to follow along there, add your own, or, uh, or use a, uh, a pen and paper, or however you like to take notes. So we, uh, if I had to come up with a title for the message today, it's Underdogs, Battles, and Bread. And, uh, and that's silly, I guess. Um. There are three things that, uh, that we're going to, to, to talk about, to cover. Uh, one is that there are going to be battles where you feel like an underdog, but you're not. You're actually the favorite. Two, you're well-equipped for those battles, and the enemy is already scared of you. And then three, the battles actually contain nutrition that's good for you. The battle itself the giants that you face 
actually are the nutrition that's good for you. So to start with, we're going to talk about uh, David. Uh, David as a young man. And we'll actually spend a good portion of our time talking about David because uh, David has 66 chapters of the Bible where we learn about his life. That's more than anyone else other than Jesus. So we should probably pay attention to the things that, uh, that the Bible tells us about David's life. And uh, so we'll spend a little bit of time on him this morning. Um, I want to set a little bit of a foundation about uh, David's life as a, uh, as a young boy. Um, there is a, we'll call it a discussion. There's a discussion amongst Bible scholars about uh, whether David was an illegitimate child, whether he was actually born um, as a result of, uh, of a, a relationship outside of the marriage of his parents or not. Um, at the end of the day, we don't know the answer to that question, but there are some clues that Scripture gives us that says that uh, either way, David had a bit of a rough time as a kid. And so the first one we'll look at is in uh, Psalm 51, 5. Psalm 51, 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. There isn't anything in there that tells us for sure why he said that, but it's an interesting statement to consider. That's David himself saying that. I was brought forth in iniquity, and, my, and in sin my mother conceived me. Uh, he also mentions something like this in Psalm 69, 8. So if we move to Psalm 69, 8. I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Again, there's nothing definitive in there that tells us why he said that, but it seems obvious that he certainly wasn't the favored one in that household. Doesn't it seem that way? Uh, if we look further, um, just historically, we know, I mean, one of the things that we know about David is that he was a shepherd, right? Historically, it's well understood that the, uh, the shepherd of the household was, while, while the Bible refers to shepherds often in positive ways, because they are positive. Contextually, back in that time, shepherd was not a very good job. That was not given to the favored members of the household. You recognize that none of David's brothers were shepherds. That was his job. And we know that historically, that was not something that, uh, that the favorite would be asked to do. Um, interesting that uh, that turned out to be pretty useful for him, his, uh, his shepherding experience. Um, in 1 Samuel 16, uh, you don't need to go there necessarily. In 1 Samuel 16, that's the, the chapter where, where God tells Samuel that he's done with Saul. Um, stop mourning for Saul is what he says. And he tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem and to, uh, to visit with Jesse, and the, uh, the new king has been chosen out of Jesse's sons. So he goes to Bethlehem, and it, again, just, just keeping in, in line with the, uh, 
the two verses that we read in this beginning of the, this discussion we've had about how hard David's life was. Why, why did an all-knowing God send this prophet to the house when David wasn't at the house? There wasn't any question about who the who the, the anointed one was going to be, right? Why didn't he just send him out into the pasture where David was? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Seems to me that uh, one of the possible answers, at least, is that God already saw him in the house or saw him in his future. And, oh yeah, by the way, this anointing needed to happen in front of the people who seemed to not favor him, or maybe even hate him. Is there something for us to maybe grab onto and be encouraged by that your anointing or God's plan for you can be delivered in front of the people who don't think that's you? Or the people who maybe even hate you? And then after he's anointed, which is not a it's not a small thing, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big production, this whole, you know, bucket or horn or whatever they carry the oil around in is poured over his head, and he's a mess, and it's obvious that, you know, the, the little guy is anointed to be the king. Well, then what? If I were there, I would think, all right, I need to be preparing to treat that kid like the king now. Well, that isn't what happened. He got chucked back out into the pasture to be a shepherd again. What? That doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense to me anyway. So that's a lesson for us that even after we're anointed, potentially to be the king, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to start treating us differently now or that our circumstances are going to automatically change. For David, actually, it was 22 years before this anointing became an appointment. And it wasn't 22 years of awesome, right? I mean, there, there were some tough things that he went through. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about um, the next chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 17. Um, this is a chapter where we actually get to learn about this um, David and Goliath fight. Everybody knows the David and Goliath story, and uh, how it starts is that um, David was uh, essentially the first. You learned what Grubhub is this morning. Those of you that didn't know, David was the first Grubhub in uh, in history. His his father sent him out to uh, to to where the battle lines were with some uh, some bread and some cheese and whatever other snacks you're supposed to, um, <clears throat> I think the Bible tells us what he delivered, but basically he was, his, his uh, father Jesse said, hey, take these snacks to your older brothers. Again, odd to me that the guy that they know already that he's anointed to be the next king is tasked with delivering snacks to his older brothers. <laughs> um. <clears throat> So he, he heads out. This battle, we, we uh, learn, is in the Valley of Allah. So I, I, uh, let's just set this, set this up and use this room to do it. So we can actually use the north here. The Valley of Allah is the space in the middle of this room. 
the north wall, the south wall, those are the ridges that on the north wall, Saul's army, the Israelites, are camped on. And just imagine with me here, this ridge is a couple hundred yards tall. It's up there a ways. Then we've got several hundred yards of valley and another ridge that's a couple hundred, hundred yards tall. And that's where the Philistine army is. So they're, they're in this bit of a deadlock here. And, and so where this, where this valley is, we're 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea and 15 miles west of Bethlehem. Just imagine that's where we are. So we've been led to believe, or at least I have been, I imagine you have been as well, um, and it's even become part of our language in this culture that this was an underdog story, right? I mean, how many hundreds of times have you heard about the David and Goliath story just referring to some improbable uh, battle or improbable victory by the little guy, by the underdog, right? Um, and it's it's made our way into, it's made its way into our culture as this lopsided contest. There's even a song. Remember the song about only a boy named David? Only a rippling book, only, right? Takes his little sling. It's, I mean, it's ingrained in us that this is, in fact, an underdog story. And uh, I'm here to share with you this morning that uh, that wasn't as completely one-sided as we've learned or been, been told that it's, that it's been in the past. So in, in ancient warfare, there were... Essentially, there were three different parts of, of the armies, of the military. There was artillery, which were the guys who were, were responsible for the air weapons. Most of the time when we think about that, or when I think about it anyway, I think about the archers, right? That's what I think about when I think about artillery. We're going to talk about this a little bit more here in a second, but also included in the artillery was the slingers, which is going to be pretty important here later on in this story, isn't it? There was also heavy infantry, heavy infantry, which were the guys that were um, versed and equipped in hand-to-hand combat. And then there was also the cavalry, which were the, uh, the guys who got to ride on horseback and in the chariots. Um, the slingers were, we don't learn an awful lot about them because it's, uh, we don't have a lot of good movies about slingers. <laughs> We've got lots of good movies about what the what the uh, the archers look like, but not the slingers. So let me just give you an idea of uh, of how the slingers worked. Um, the most famous we know most of this from just from history books, and uh, there was a a group of people in the uh, the Baltic Islands, and they were referred to as the the Balearic slingers. And it's not because that's all they had. It's because that's what they were just most famous for. So most of what we know about the capabilities of the sling come from the study of these people. But we can learn an awful lot about that and and compare that to what we read about David and the capabilities he had with the sling. So slings came in different lengths, uh, made out of different materials, but essentially you understand the design. We got two long cords two or three feet long, and a basket to hold some, some sort of ammunition, whether it was a rock like in this story, or some of these uh, groups would actually um, make their own ammunition. They were like 
two cones, like incense cones almost, back, back to back. And, uh, and they would fly in a way that is just pretty interesting if you know anything about, about ballistics and about how, uh, how things fly through the air. Um, the, uh, the rocks in that particular valley, uh, in the Valley of Allah, were made out of a material called barium sulfate. Barium sulfate is about twice the density of just any normal everyday rock that you might pick up. It's a really, really dense rock. Um, the, uh, the slingers could are known to have been able to sling a projectile at a minimum of 100 feet per second, which is pretty blame fast. They had a range of about 400 meters, and there's, there have been people who have tried to calculate in today's weapons, like what, what sort of stopping power that would equate to. And in the right conditions, a sling could be used to create the same stopping power as a 45 caliber handgun today. It's, it's going really fast and it's really heavy and it can do some damage. Uh, Judges 2016. Can you actually pull that up for me? In Judges 2016, I'll not read it to you, but it says that, that there were 700 men that could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. So apparently this is a pretty accurate weapon as well. Now, to me, the guys who have the most accurate weapons are the snipers of the military. I was a sniper. On uh, on the SWAT team in uh, in Larimer County, where uh, where I worked before we before we moved back here, so this speaks to me. All of this about how precise a slinger could be. Um, that alone, all by itself, that eliminates the idea that this is an underdog story anymore. In fact, if it's an underdog story, we're probably talking about it being an underdog story in the opposite direction. All, alone, um, there's also been some. Uh, we'll say discussion about um, Goliath himself. We learn an awful lot about Goliath in Scripture, about you know the uh, the weight of his armor and the weight of his spear and all of those things, and how you know humongous a person he was. Um, one of the things that's debated about him is the possibility that he had a, a medical condition that's called acromegaly. Acromegaly is a uh, it's a tumor that's on a person's pituitary gland. And essentially, it makes that person not stop growing ever. They grow to these great big sizes. And uh, one of the, um, again, no one knows if Goliath had acromegaly. But it seems that there are some things that would indicate that maybe he actually had some medical issues that were not readily obvious to the Israelites. Or they would have done something about these taunts that he was throwing out much sooner. Um, one of the uh, challenges for people with acromegaly is that the tumor on their pituitary gland grows so big that it puts pressure on their optic nerve, and they can't see well. And that's, that's pretty universal for anyone that we know of that's been studied that actually has, has been diagnosed with acromegaly. The tallest person in the history of the world had acromegaly. I forget what his name is, but he was quite tall and uh, couldn't see very well. Um, some of the things that we, that we read about with, uh, with Goliath, I'm not sure that I necessarily 
um, am convinced by these things, but statements that we read in the Bible about him taunting, why do you come at me with sticks? Okay, did he see two sticks and that's the reason why he said sticks? I don't know, but that's interesting. And we know that, that David went down there with a shepherd's staff, not with two sticks. When, uh, when it says that he's led down into the valley by an attendant, well, that, that could be just a shield bearer who carries all of his heavy stuff. Could also be because he couldn't see well enough to get down to the valley himself. And yet he could still be a champion of Gath despite those medical challenges just because he's so big. And because a champion in their eyes is the heavy infantry. That's what Goliath was. He was part of heavy, heavy infantry. So when he came down and started taunting the Israelites and challenging them to this personal combat, he had every expectation that what that would result in is someone coming down there to fight with him hand-to-hand because that's what he was his champion at. That's what they were expecting. I don't know that there's any rule book that says this is how you do ancient warfare, but it sounds to me certainly like that's what he was expecting, doesn't it? So... David uh, hears the taunts. He's offended by them, rightly so. He, we know the story. He goes and, uh, and talks to Saul and says, hey, is anybody going to do anything about this? Because if not, I will, right? We, we know all of that. Just a, this is just sort of a side note. Um, what was promised to the man that would, that would take out Goliath? Do you remember that part of the story? He would get great wealth, he'd get Saul's daughter in marriage, and his family would be exempt from taxes. Two of those three things, his family, the, the people who didn't like him very much, it appears, they're the ones that benefited from, from the, the, the result that we end up, we end up seeing. The, uh, the daughter's hand in marriage back at that time is, that wasn't just for David. That was because, that, that was for the entire family because now they had political influence as well. And obviously being exempt from the pain of taxes, that's uh, obvious any of us would take that, wouldn't we? So <clears throat> even in the midst of, of him being offended about what's being said about his God, the result is a benefit for these guys who didn't choose him in the first place, who weren't very kind to him in the first place. And we see that actually from some of his brothers when he starts asking questions about what's actually going to happen. Why isn't anyone doing, doing anything about this? His brothers are still being unkind and discouraging him at the very least, right? We won't read through all that, but... Uh, so what does David do? He encouraged himself because his brothers certainly weren't doing it. Saul certainly wasn't doing it. He encouraged himself with his own experience, right? With his own experiences with God, right? He, he reminded himself about the lion and the bear, which I'm not sure if I've ever said this here before or not, but when we, when we uh, visited about this in uh, the youth, or maybe it was in uh, Sunday school, one of the things that came up just as I was encouraging the, the kids to, so what questions do you have about this? We were just talking about 
what are different ways that we can actually study the Bible? And we chose this, this story because there's just lots of interesting questions to ask. Well, one of the questions that came up, Lydia asked it. She's like, if he killed a lion and a bear with his hands, how did his brothers and his family and everyone, how did they not know about that? How, how, how does that happen? I guarantee you, if I killed a lion with my bare hands, you'd know. Wouldn't you? I would make sure that you think differently of me. Anyway. So he, uh, he goes down to this battle in, we'll just spiritualize this a little bit, in his own anointing. He was offered Saul's armor, the Lord had departed from Saul already. David rejected that. In his own anointing, he went down and faced Goliath. Um, what's, uh, back then, what was the penalty for defying God amongst the Israelites? What was the penalty? Stoning. You know what's going to happen in the story, right? Uh, Drew, can you, I asked Drew already to come help me out with this. So Drew is going to uh, come up on stage right up there, bud. Now, since we're roughly the same size now, I'm, I'm going to need to come down here so that the height difference is right, right? Okay. So let's say I'm David. And Goliath is uh, taunting me. He's saying bad things about God. Drew's never done this. I'm a slinger, apparently. I whip my sling around, chuck it at him. It hits his head. It hits his head. What should happen if something with the ballistic capability of a 45 caliber handgun hits him in the forehead? What should happen to him? What, what do you think? If I hit you with something that, I mean, you've never felt like what it feels like to, I hope you never do, hit you in the forehead, what direction are you going to fall? Probably, right? I mean, unless it, I will not get into that. That's probably not appropriate for church. So, he doesn't fall backwards, right? He falls forward, face down. What does that say to you? Is that significant to any of you? What about you, Drew? Significant to you? You're supposed to fall backwards, but you fall forward instead because you've been taunting God, and the penalty for taunting God is stoning, which you just got stoned. Then Goliath falls face down because the Bible tells us... uh, Oh, that's not my notes. The Bible tells us that every knee shall bow. Falling on your face in front of God, to me, counts as bowing. Whether you want to or not, it's a guarantee everyone will bow. Thanks, Drew. Thank you, Drew. So Goliath falls face down, and then his head gets chopped off, 
And, uh, and we know the, the rest of the story there, right? So learning about some of the history, learning about some of the weapons, learning about what actually happened there, does it sound to you like David was an underdog in this fight? Actually sounds like Goliath was the underdog here, right? If I bring a sniper rifle to a fist fight, someone is at a severe disadvantage, right? You're not always the underdog that you've been led to think you are. You have the tools already to be the favorite in the battles that you're guaranteed are going to happen. If we move backwards to uh, Numbers 13 and 14, uh, you don't need to go there, Jeremy, but um, Neil talked about this a little bit last week. Um, this is the, uh, the story about, or part of the story about where the children of Israel were lost, so to speak, right? They had, uh, they had been told that this land was promised to them. It had already been given to them. Then, uh, and in, in context, by the way, before we even get to Moses sending out the 12 spies that we, again, that, that Neil talked about a little bit last week, before we even get to that, the context is, I've given you this land. What had just happened to them? What had just happened to, the, to, to God's people, to the Israelites, when he said to them, I'm giving you this land? A whole bunch of plagues in Egypt that allowed them, in part at least, to be free, right? All of them pretty miraculous, wouldn't you say? You know, turning a river to blood, kind of a big deal. There were, what were there, 10 of them or something? Um, the, the, they're, they're let go from Egypt, and what do they get to follow in the daytime? A, a, a cloud that says, here's where you go. And then at nighttime, that cloud turns into a cloud of fire that says, here's the direction. I mean, it seems like that would be something that would catch your attention as well, Right? And then we have the Red Sea, which is an interesting miracle in the, at the very least as well. Should catch your attention, right? All of these really miraculous supernatural things are happening to these people. And then God says something as simple as, I'm giving you that land, go take it. And the response is, after they send out these, these spies to go spy out the land, again, remembering God had just parted a, a sea for them to be able to walk across, among other things, and their response, or 10 of the spies, the, the spies' response is to say, yeah, this land is awesome, but we're like grasshoppers in our own sight compared to the people there. There's no way. What are you doing, Moses? Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? Right? right? I mean, they start complaining despite all of the things that they had just been subjected to. And the two, right, we learned about, said same thing about how awesome it was, and they said, and no big deal. Yeah, there are some giants there. We're well able to, to, uh, to overtake them. And what ends up happening, the people believe the 10 who were, they weren't lying, by the way, were they? They didn't say anything about the land that wasn't actually factually true, did they? So sometimes 
trying to figure out the best way to, to say this. Sometimes when you're operating out of fear or you hear someone operating out of fear, it doesn't sound like they're actually operating out of fear. It sounds wise. Sometimes if you operate out of fear, your friends will say that you're being wise and reasonable. But you're not going to make any progress. If we move forward to uh, the first chapter of Joshua, Joshua is called to, to lead Israel. Um, God tells him, Moses, my servant, is dead. It's interesting that the Bible tells us that, right? Like Moses, his, or, or Joshua is one of Moses's, you know, closest closest people, right? You think he knows that Moses is dead? God says, Moses is dead. Um, in uh, Actually, let's go to that, uh, Numbers 14, 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I've heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh, or Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore and I would make, uh, would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I'll bring them in and they shall know the land which you have despised. Anyway, the point is, God said, all right, if you're not going to go take it, you're not getting it. I'm not giving this to you. You're going to die before you get to go in here. I'm giving it to your kids. So do a better job with them. Except for Caleb and Joshua, right? So God says, Moses is dead. That means, okay, now it's time to go. Let's try this again. Now you are in charge of the people. Uh, <clears throat> and gives him specific instruction about what to do next. Joshua then turns around, gives that instruction to uh, messengers, essentially, to go tell the people, hey, let's get ready to go because we're heading out. We're going to go take possession of this land that were promised to our fathers. Now that they're all dead, we get to go in there, right? Then what happens? Oh, oh yeah, by the way, there's another miracle that happens where they cross the Jordan on dry ground too. You know, just no big deal. Just another another miracle to get into the promised land. Um he then sends spies, which sounds like a similar story, doesn't it? He sends spies to Jericho. They meet up with this woman named Rahab who hides them for some reason. And she, she finds out that the, the, the king of Jericho knows that there's these spies there. He sends out his soldiers to go find these spies. Rahab hides them 
the, the soldiers take off and go try to find them outside of the city for whatever reason. She successfully hides them, and then she says this to, the, to them in Joshua 2.9. I actually put this up. I'll go ahead and read it, but it says, this is Rahab speaking. I know that the Lord has given you this land, that the terror of you have fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. When Joshua sent the spies to Jericho, how long had it been since the last time they, I mean, other than than them crossing the Jordan, how long had it been since they had seen a miracle from God? 40, 40 years, right? And the inhabitants of Jericho heard about it, and she says to them, we know, I know, we know, that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you have fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Because we heard about what your God did and we've been scared of you ever since. The whole time, the whole time these people have been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, the inhabitants of the land that they were given were scared of them already? What a waste of time. Let's back up just a little bit now to uh, Numbers 14.9. This is Joshua. This is after, let me get there first. This is, this is when Joshua was part of the 12 spies. He and, he and Caleb and the other 10 got sent out to go, to go spy out the, uh, the promised land, Right? The 10 come back with this report that, oh, this is an awesome place, but it's, it's terrible. There's no way we can, we can do it. Joshua and Caleb say, it's, it's awesome, and we can do it. Let's go, right? There's an argument about it. The people side with the 10. This is what Joshua says in Numbers 14.9. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Do not rebel against the Lord. It's rebellion to not go take advantage of the thing that he promised you? Hmm. Nor the fear of the people of the land, for they are our bread. I hope this is, uh, I hope this is revelation to you. I, I, I can't stand up here and say, oh, I've found these facts, but my mind got blown when I started reading into this. Go to Matthew 6.11. Who's speaking in Matthew 6.11? Jesus is speaking. He's teaching us how to pray, and he says, give us this day our daily bread, which sounds like, give me just what I need today, right? means that too. Sounds also like it means the giants and the battles that you face, which Joshua told us are our bread. Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread. Sounds like there's some nutrition that comes from the giants in our lives. Sounds like there's some nutrition that comes from the battles in our lives. 
That caught my attention when, when those two got put together. And, and maybe, maybe I'm completely tearing that out of context and making something up. Still caught my attention. And by the way, Psalm 23.5 tells us that he, God, prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. So we know that there are enemies. We know there are going to be fights. There's no question about whether or not this is true, right? I mean, if you believe the Bible, this is true. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We get to feast, and the enemies are there. It's not like they don't exist or, or they're going to get taken care of and you know shuffled away somewhere. They have to sit there and watch us eat and watch us be nourished by the table that's set for us. We're asked to pray for our daily bread, which I don't see how the battles that we face and the giants that we face are not also our bread. Even if those two are not directly related to each other, they're both true and they can both be true at the same time. It's going to be a fight, right? Nobody questions whether or not life's going to be a fight. John 16.33 tells us that there's going to be trouble in life, right? You don't need to go there either. We're, we're running short on time. Just because there's going to be trouble doesn't mean that God gives us all of those things. I mean, we have to remember what the fingerprints of God look like compared to what the fingerprints of Satan look like, right? If it's the fingerprints of God, it's going to give life and life more abundantly, right? Even if it doesn't feel that way, it's going to be life and life more abundantly. If it's from Satan, it was designed to kill, to steal, and to destroy. It's not hard to tell which is Satan and which is from God. Regardless of how it feels, it's not hard to tell those two apart. And then we're also promised in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are calling to, according to his purpose. All things. Even the things that appear to kill, steal, and destroy that God promises us he's going to turn and use for good, right? Okay. Consider this as we wrap up. Crystal, uh, go ahead and, and come back up with your team. strength that we get is from the battle, not for the battle. You get strength from battles. It doesn't work the other way. It, it doesn't, it's not given to you so that you can go fight your battle. Your strength comes from the battle. Makes sense that, that your battle and your giants would be called bread, doesn't it? That's where your strength comes from, is, is the fight. Because you've been well-equipped, right? Seems to me like we're being told very clearly this morning, you are not the underdog when facing these giants. You are not the underdog when facing these battles. The tools that you've been given require some faith to recognize that they are, in fact, tools and that they are as strong as, and as accurate and as whatever other good positive words you want to you put in front of that but they're useful for us. 
So did we see this morning that there are going to be battles where you feel like the underdog, but you're not. You're the favorite. You're well equipped for those battles. And the enemy's already scared of you. And the battles that you face are your nutrition. They're good for you. may take some time to marinate on all of that. But that's good for us too. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for what you show us in your word, what you promise us in your word. I thank you that you reveal things to us when we're ready to hear them, when we can hear them and when we can understand them. I thank you that you've done that for us today and that what you've had to say to us matters for our lives in ways that we can recognize and in ways that will have an impact on those around us, will have an impact on our future. It'll have an impact on the new things that you'll reveal to us. Thank you for showing us that today. Thank you for the opportunities that you give us to recognize it, see it, and use it. And I thank you that you'll reveal even more to us to build on this, to edify us, to give us strength in our understanding and our encouragement. We thank you for these things and we claim them in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live and you can watch Sermon Slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.